As I said, we're in Second Peter, and we're going to read Second uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, as part of it tonight anyway, and uh, the issue of the day was that there was a question mark over the fact whether Jesus would return. Back in 2011, there was a guy called Harold Camping in the United States of America who predicted that on the 21st of May 2011, Jesus Christ would return at 6 p.m. local time. I'm not sure if he'd selected the exact coffee shop in which Jesus Christ would return to or uh, you know, give the coordinates for Christ's return, but that was the thing. And we laugh about it and we joke about it. There was a billboard campaign. He was a radio broadcaster and TV evangelist and promoted this message. And we can laugh and joke about it, but for some people it wasn't funny because they emptied their children's college funds. They, they, they got rid of their life savings because they thought the world was going to end. And it came to five past six on that Sunday and, or that day and nothing changed. And so he revised his dates and he, he advertised another date uh, when Jesus would return. And then eventually, uh, I think he did own up that he has no clue, no idea uh, when Christ will return. And actually, Jesus himself said that he would come like a thief in the night. No one knows the hour or the day uh, when Christ will return. And so uh, it wasn't so for Second Peter, and, for, and Peter writes this letter, not so much that people were saying, we know exactly when Christ will return. They were saying, he's not going to return at all. And so this passage is, can be hard-hitting, can be difficult. And uh, I remember some, one person saying about this kind of text in the Bible is that a shepherd is tender with the flock and, and tough with the wolves. And so I suppose, while it doesn't sound very fluffy or nice or pastoral in tone, what Peter's intention is to protect the little flock that he cares for, and he wants them to be able to identify uh, when people are, are leading them astray. So this is what Peter says in the, in the second chapter, beginning in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into a gloomy dungeon to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men 
blaspheming matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. We end there giving thanks to God for his word to us and how he speaks to us today. Just before we think about this passage of scripture, the men's ministry in church is called Transform and they also meet again this week on Monday evening and they've produced a short video to promote their Bible study and you can hear more about it now through their promotional campaign. We're back on Monday the 3rd of February. We're continuing to look at our topic, Jesus the Provocative Teacher. Then on Monday the 24th of February, we're looking at our new book, The Case for Christ. I've spent my entire career as a journalist uncovering the truth. Until the day my wife presented me with the biggest story of my life. Case for Christ. From that moment on, I set out to prove to her and to the rest of the world that they were wrong. What happened next changed me. like to welcome all the men in the church to transform upstairs on a Monday night at 8 o'clock. Okay, so you all need to up your game if you're trying to invite someone to an event in church and you produce your own uh, advertising campaign. Uh, well done to the men for that. 8 o'clock tomorrow night, you'll be made uh, really, really welcome. I'm sure you, you're familiar with the children's story, Little Red Riding Hood. And in, in that story, the wolf, if you recall, enters grandma's house, gobbles up grandma and hides himself under the bedclothes so that when unsuspecting Little Red Riding Hood arrives, she is in a place of danger. And uh, as we kind of go through the story, we hear the exchange between this little girl and the person that she anticipates is her grandmother, and, and you can tell that as the conversation goes on, Little Red Riding Hood begins to see that there's a disconnect with how things should be and how things actually are before her eyes. What big eyes you've got. What big ears you've got, Grandma. What big teeth you've got. All the better to eat you with. And she's thinking, Granny's teeth are a bit big. <laughs> Granny's ears 
are a bit big. There's a disconnect between what the child expects to see in front of her and what is actually in front of her. The wolf in the story has already gobbled up grandma and is now licking its lips at the thought of having little red riding hood for dessert. But it seems as though the little girl is more discerning than granny and is able to work out that things are not as they should be. Something's happening before her eyes that is not quite right. And if we were to give a title or a topic um, to the uh, section of, of 2 Peter chapter 2 that I read to you, it could easily be entitled How to Spot a Wolf. Because Peter wants to protect the church from danger as he nears the end of his life. His life is drawing to a close. He reveals that in, in the letter that he writes. And he's wanting the church to be prepared for the attack that he hears is already happening to them. He knows they're vulnerable. He knows they're under pressure. And he thinks, I'm going to write this letter to prepare them for the dangerous situation that they find themselves in. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't tiptoe around the issue. It's hard-hitting. It's not an easy read. It's not as if he's really sensitive. He's really direct because he loves his flock and he wants to protect them. He wants to care for them. And so he's really explicit in the things that he says. You, re you may remember in the, in the previous section in, in chapter one, Peter was reminding the church that they are on an equal footing. They have equal status with the apostles. That because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they are not second-class citizens among the people of God, but they have equal status, equal standing with the apostles. And the reason that they, they could have equal standing or equal status with the apostles was because their faith rested on the word of God that men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was saying to them, you have the very word of God. You have the words that God spoke by his spirit, and so your faith is equal to theirs. And now we get into chapter two, and Peter contrasts that kind of faith and that kind of authoritative speech and writing with what's going on when false teachers speak and when false prophets prophesy. Rather than being carried along by the Holy Spirit, Peter says in this chapter that the church today, just like in Old Testament times, is under pressure because people will exploit you with stories they have made up. He says to the church that there is a possibility that from among you, people will sweep in with their own opinions and share their own ideas and place them on equal authority with the very word of God spoken by his spirit. The origin of their authority will be their own opinion rather than something God has expressed or made clear or made plain through his word. I was a student um, at Coleraine University and one summer I got the amazing opportunity to be a counselor at a camp in America, it just means you're a youth leader, but they like to call it, you know, something like you're a professional. There's no way was I a counselor. But I, I was a leader at a youth camp in America, in, in Minnesota. And we were in this amazing venue. It was a clear water forest, a, an amazing lake and a forest and just loads of greenery. And it was an amazing place. And for that whole summer, we had different kids come and stay with us for a week and stay in the cabin and do lots of activities. And it was a, it was a Christian camp, so we taught them Bible stories. We worshiped together. There was drama, uh, kayaking. It was amazing. And that one night after a fantastic day when we'd done loads of sports, there'd been drama and worship and uh, lots of things going on. We'd eaten really well. And just before the kids went to bed at night, we sat around this campfire toasting marshmallows 
and that someone probably had a, an acoustic guitar with a rainbow strap and they were like singing Christian songs and it was like, it was all the cheese that you could anticipate or imagine. It was all happening and I was secretly loving it. And uh, as we were sitting there out in the open, the pitch black, we saw a shooting star and it was incredible and everyone was like, whoa, that's amazing. And then one of the counselors said, I, I love it when I see a shooting star because it just makes me know that God loves me and God approves of me, and everything's going to be okay. And all the kids are like, wow, that's brilliant. And I'm thinking, God approves of these people? I know what they're like. These spotty teenagers that I have to look after have been giving me a horrible time ever since they came here. And that wee fella hasn't slept the whole time. And God approves of them. I've heard some of the things that he said about the other people on the... And uh, I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure about this theory, but they're all loving it and they're sharing this kind of idea. And the only problem with, with the, the speech of the leader who had said, God approves of you when you see a shooting star is that it has no basis in fact. It's, like, it's not like in the Bible anywhere that God approves of you when you see a shooting star. And, and I, I was kind of imagining them, you know, imagine if they went another 10 years and never saw another shooting star, but they have to just cling to the fact that they saw one once. And like, I probably thought about it too much, um, which, which would be uh, typical for me. But nowhere in God's word does he offer us peace with himself through a shooting star. Or, or does he promise the forgiveness of sins when we see a shooting star? Or the hope of eternal life based on something that we see happen in the sky? This makes the cross of Jesus Christ irrelevant, makes the person of Jesus Christ unnecessary because all you need is to see a shooting star and all of a sudden you're in a right relationship with God and you have nothing to fear and you're on the right path and all those kind of things. And while it might seem ridiculous, it's stuck in my mind and it's an age-old problem. The prophets and teachers are telling people that things are okay when they're not okay. Prophets and teachers are endorsing behavior that is explicitly outlined in God's word as wrong. And Ezekiel puts it this way in Ezekiel 13 verses nine and 10. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because of your false words and lying visions, I'm against you, declares the sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am sovereign, declares the Lord, because they lead my people astray, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. If a medical doctor said to you that you were okay, when in fact you were critically ill, and you later found out that they didn't share with you the information they had because they were concerned that you might cry or they were worried about how you might react, you would be annoyed with them. You would say, I wish you told me the truth so I could do something about it. You would be livid. And Peter says that one feature of the false teachers is that they will exploit you or manipulate you so that they are liked and approved of by you. And he says, you know, th this is dangerous. You want a teacher to tell you the truth. Men spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but there were other people who told you made up stories and you need to be on your guard. Another couple of features of false teaching come in in relation to motivation. What motivates someone to spin the truth? What motivates someone to tell you lies? They're not motivated ultimately by love for Jesus or even love for the flock, but there's a love of money or a craving for sexual immorality that lies at the root of leading people astray. The overarching false story, remember, is that Christ is not coming back. You're on your own in this life, and so the situations that you face right now are the ultimate situations, and there is no hope of eternity. So what you're experiencing right now is all there is. The idea that there would be no judgment, the idea that there would be no eternity with Christ was creeping into the church and bubbling up from among the believers. And so you can live as you please. And if you think about it for just a moment, you can see how a false teacher could prey on vulnerable people in that situation. People who are unable to connect with public worship. And a false teacher could come and say, if you, if you just gave me some money, I can guarantee that you'd be well. I can guarantee that you won't have this situation or that situation in your life. I can guarantee you a miracle if you just sow a financial seed and your life will be transformed. They preyed on vulnerable people to manipulate them. Verse 14 says, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. You don't have to flick on your television screen too long before you come across false teachers. And you see how a false teacher on a television screen is so dangerous in our culture to people who are so ill or have been so harmed by uh, church experience that they cannot uh, consider being present in public worship. And so they're stuck at home, isolated from Christian community, and there's some guy on TV saying, sow a financial seed and your circumstances will be changed dramatically. With no one to correct that false notion, feeling overlooked, feeling that you are forgotten about and wondering, will things ever change? And someone says, all you need to do is just send in a donation. And there's no talk of how to endure hard times. There's no talk of how Christ promised in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You'll not hear a televangelist say that. Because what they want you to think is your situation is ultimate. There is no end. Christ is not coming back, and this is all there is. And so there's no, uh, people are robbed of hope in that situation robbed of the hope of eternal life, robbed of the hope that Jesus promised when he said that he would come back to be with us and take us to be with him. You know the way that leads to the place where I'm going. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only are we robbed of hope, but we're robbed of our motivation to be obedient. Well, why would I be obedient to the commands and laws and expressed will of God when there's gonna be no accounting for it anyway? when there's gonna be no judgment, why would I be obedient to what God is calling me to do? 
And so the false teacher becomes the savior who says, I can make it better for you. If you just give me your money or give me your body, then things will be okay. What we need to notice about false teachers is, is for them to act, they need our resources. They need, they need our stuff. And if you reflect back into uh, chapter one, Peter says to the church, talking about Jesus Christ, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God does not need your resources in order to give you mercy, in order to give you forgiveness, in order to guide you or lead you, in order to strengthen you for obedience. He does not need your money. He does not need your body. He is not saying, if only you would do this for me, then I could do that for you. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God is not like that. Christ is not like that. You don't need to give money to get God's favor. False teachers routinely try to uh, secretly extract money from people and, and secretly extract their bodies and explain away their reasons for disobeying God. They seduce the unstable, Peter says in verse 14. Peter's a fisherman. He knows how to seduce fish. He knows how to bait so that he can attract the fish. He knows how to ensnare fish and catch fish. And what he's saying to the church here is that there are people among you who are misusing sex, misusing money, misusing power in order to ensnare you, in order to take you away from the way that God would have you live. And you should be on your guard. How to spot a wolf, abuse of money, abuse of sex, abuse of power. One commentator says this, Peter was fulfilling his divine calling as a fisher of men, as others uncalled by God were trolling the same souls but with evil intent. And, and Peter's saying, here's how to spot a wolf. They will need your stuff in order to operate. Don't be led astray. Don't be caught by them. All of this activity is done secretly, without transparency, without honesty and integrity, and there's a pretense of legitimacy. Remember, the wolf was hiding in grandma's bed, where we expect grandma to be, there was a wolf. They will not introduce to you their teaching or their ideas and say, now this is false, and I am a false teacher. There will be an air of legitimacy, but it will be done secretly. Peter doesn't write this letter to freak the church out. He doesn't want you to become a heresy hunter and try and figure out, are they telling lies? Are they telling lies? That's not what this is about. Peter writes to encourage the church to be on their guard, to be aware, yes, but we're working through this book to help you go deep in your discipleship and to help you have confidence in the fact that Jesus will return. He wants you to have confidence and to grow in your knowledge of God. Right at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that no one may be carried away by the error of, of lawlessness and fall from a secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't want you just to know, you know how to spot a wolf. He wants you to know how you can be saved from your trials. He wants you to know how you can be rescued, where the power comes from so that you can be saved. 
He wants to encourage you. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Peter wants you to know you can be saved. You, you can endure. You can be rescued. You might be looking in at yourself tonight and thinking about the pressure that you're experiencing in your family, the pressure you're experiencing in your workplace, the pressure you might even be experiencing in your church or in your human relationships with other people, and, and you're thinking, I don't know. This is too hard. How can I endure? How can I be obedient? How can I be strong? And you feel so weak. Peter points out that none of us need to be victims of our circumstances, that there is help from outside. That the rescue that you need and the rescue that I need does not come from you and I trying harder. Does not come from you and I digging deep. We are not at the, the mercy of popular opinion. We are not at the mercy of our own determination or our, you know, how's the New Year's uh, resolutions going? Um, maybe we'll move on quickly. We're, we're not at the mercy of our own resolve. It's not on your shoulders or my shoulders to rescue us from the trials that we're experiencing right now. He says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We don't have to be overcome by the waves of popular opinion. We don't have to be drowned by false teaching. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And in this passage, Peter gives a couple of examples of people who were godly and God rescued them. He talks about Noah and, and his family members in the flood and he talks about Lot. If he rescued Lot who was distressed by the filthy lives of godless men, will he not also be able to rescue you? If he punished other people who disobeyed, will he not also punish them? The ironic thing about this passage is that when Peter says, um, that there were people who were denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. We should think, hey, hang on a minute, Peter. You just used the word denying the sovereign Lord. Do, do you know anybody who denied the sovereign Lord, Peter? So you, used, you just used the word denying. Does that ring a bell? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. You see, the encouraging message of this passage and the encouraging message of the whole Bible is that you can get it wrong. You can fall. You can sin and it does not need to be final. You can be redeemed. You can be restored. You can feel like Peter and still experience the freedom of Jesus Christ. If Peter can be restored, you and I can be restored. If Peter can be in a relationship with Jesus Christ after messing up so publicly and so embarrassingly, then so, so can you and I. Peter was explicitly invited to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus particularly mentioned his name. Tell the disciples and Peter to come. He wanted Peter to be there, even though Peter had denied knowing Jesus. There is a redeemer. Redemption is possible. You can wipe out and be restored. That is the message of this letter from Peter, someone who did wipe out. You can wipe out and be restored. There is hope for you and there is hope for me. Even when the pressure's on, even when we feel outnumbered, even when we feel like it's impossible. I was uh, sharing this morning that 
I haven't always been pretty rubbish at maths. I uh, was consistently rubbish at it in school and uh, did, uh, you know, repeats of GCSE maths more times than I can actually count. That's how bad at maths I am. And, uh, but even I know three plus three isn't seven. But imagine if I got it into my head that three plus three was seven and I persuaded some of my friends to believe that three plus three was seven and actually some of my friends then convinced some other people in my class that three plus three was seven. Even if there was a, my whole class believed that three plus three was seven and lots of people managed to you know, convince others that three plus three was seven, they would still be wrong no matter how many of them there were. No matter how many of us there are who believe that three plus three is seven, we are all wrong. We're just like lots of us wrong. And so Peter wants the church to know that while they may feel vulnerable, while they may feel under attack, while they may feel weak and stupid and, and marginalized, they can know the truth. They can know reality. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but there were other men who just made up stories. Even if people mock you for your beliefs, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. His power is sufficient to sustain you when you're under intense pressure, when it feels like it's too much and you cannot go on. Paul tells the Corinthian church in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. Who of you tonight needs to know that God is faithful? That even though you've walked to him, away from him, he will not walk away from you. Even though you've abandoned him, he will not abandon you. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He will provide a way out. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You are not a victim. You are not trapped. There is hope because of Jesus. Matt Chandler says this, we are often accused of being old-fashioned, and beyond our expiration date. And that will only increase in our post-Christendom age. But in truth, our time is yet to come. And the gospel has never been in fashion in a world rebelling against its maker. The arc of history bends towards the justice and peace and triumph of Christ's return. And that is the story and the message and the confidence of the church. The confidence of the church. The arc of history bends towards Christ's return. He's coming back. Whatever your particular pain is tonight, it is temporary. You're living with it until he comes. This is not the way things will always be. There is a day coming when he will wipe away every tear, when there will be no more sickness or sadness, no more divorce or division, no more pressure, but only freedom. You will live this way until he comes. Does God change your circumstances? Has he the ability to answer prayer? Yes, you should keep on praying. You should keep on seeking the transformation of your life and circumstances that only he can give. But know that your present set of circumstances are only a reality until he comes. He's able to rescue the godly from trials. We sang earlier, and I love it when we sing it, Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. 
God's brought you to this place by his mercy and grace. And that same mercy and grace will be enough to get you home. He is faithful. He will not abandon you and he will endure with you. What should you do in the week ahead as you think about this situation and think about your own life? Well, let me encourage you to read Psalm 73. Because in that Psalm, Asaph, the worship leader, experiences difficulty. He looks around at the world and he's like, all the bad guys are getting away with it. I might just be like them. They're violent and they mistreat people and they drive big fancy cars because they've got the rewards of it. Basically, as I read Psalm 73, I imagine Asaph looking at drug dealers in a society thinking, that drug dealing looks okay. Why am I being obedient to God? The rewards of drug dealing are really obvious and it looks good. Maybe I should just go and be a drug dealer. But then there's a point where he comes to his senses in the presence of God and he sees what happens to people who disobey. He sees that there are consequences to ignoring God's ways and he knows that God will always be with him, that the reward of obedience is better by far. And he surrenders his life completely to the purposes of God, to the ways of God and says, I want to honor God. I want to trust God. I want to live for God. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not too many televangelists preach on that verse but he speaks to people who are sick and and who are ill and he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. That's the reality for all of us. One day your heart will fail. It will stop beating, but the Lord will be the strength of your heart and your portion forever. There is an eternal reality that enables you to see your temporary situation with hope, even though it's painful. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 73 in the week ahead and ask God to make it your story. Whatever your pain, whatever your pressure, and say, God, you know how to rescue people like me from trials. Um, I find it impossible, but it is possible with you. Let me encourage you to do that in the week ahead, and we will certainly be praying for you as a church that you would experience the presence of God in your present circumstances until he comes.